Welcome to Shed Life. Alrighty, uh, welcome to the Shed, uh, Mr. P.D. Mangan. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, how are you, sir? Uh, thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to do it. I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? Yeah, great, man, great. Um, so you're based out in, uh, whereabouts in the USC base, sorry? I'm in California, in central California, uh, nice. where it's pretty, pretty hot right now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How's things with uh, the lockdown and all that? Is everything okay, or are you still in the we, lockdown? Uh, we, yeah, so um, they, it, we're, we're kind of in re-lockdown mode, um, and, you know, like, so uh, restaurants have to serve outside only. Uh, all bars are closed. Mm -hmm. uh, gyms, I'm not sure exactly. The gym I was going to before went bankrupt and closed permanently a couple months ago. So uh, yeah, there's there's not a lot open. Um, it, you know, it's like it's a semi lockdown mm -hmm. at the, at the moment. Yeah, it's tough at the moment. That's a shame though. So how are you keeping fit and stuff at the moment? Are you uh, you hope working out from home or? I do work out from home, right? So. Um, you know, not not long before this all happened, you know, I, I bought some gym equipment um, just basically for a project of mine. Uh, you know, I didn't didn't ha didn't know this was going to happen, right? And so, um, anyway, I yeah, it's just some cheap equipment that I got at Walmart, chin up bar, barbell, dumbbells, and uh, that's what I work out with now. Um, so yeah, I've just got it, you know, set up in my garage and uh, it's real easy. I, you know, at first I was, uh, I was thinking, well, I really miss the gym and I, I, I can't wait for the gym to open up again so I can go back. But now I'm used to doing it at home and um, I like it and I don't have to get in my car and go anywhere. I just walk out into my garage and there I am. So I, I don't know if I'll ever be going back to a gym, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. It's a lot easier, isn't it? If you've got the right equipment, then I guess there's no need to pay a membership fee or anything, is it? Right. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's start at the beginning, uh, Mr. Mangan. Like, if you could give us sort, sort of an overview of your life up till, up till kind of, you know, your major point of introspection and um, kind of dedication to change. And I mean, I believe it's around 2008, just from going off your website. But, you know, if you could give us a nice little overview up to that point, uh, just for our listeners. Oh, okay, sure. Um, so, you know, your, your listeners may or may not know that I, you know, my main topic is health and fitness. Um, so, um, and I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an overview here. You know, stop me anytime if this gets too boring, if you have any questions. <laughs> but I'll tell you how this sure. all happened, right? So... I've been interested in health and fitness for a long time. Um, you know, like, let's say since the age of 19 or 20, had more than a passing interest in it. I wanted to be in shape. Um, I, I, you know, in thinking back on it, I, I attribute that to the fact that there was a heart disease epidemic uh, in the United States and in developed countries such as the UK. Um, you know, basically it, it's gone down a lot. So when I say heart disease epidemic, what I'm talking about is middle-aged men dying of heart attacks. Mm. So at, at the beginning of the 20th century, there wasn't much of this going on, but it, it, it just increased exponentially until 
about 1965 was the peak. I was 10 years old in 1965. Um, and you know, it was, it was a pretty serious business, uh, with, with, with this phenomenon of middle-aged men dying of heart attacks. Um, my, my father had heart disease, so he never had a heart attack and he ended up living a good long life. Uh, but he did have heart disease and it affected him a lot. And I could see that even at a young age. And so I was determined that I did not want that to happen to me. Um, so anyway, that I, that I think was the beginning of my interest in, um, in any case. So when I was, you know, later on, say when I was 20, um, I decided, you know, I was doing something about it, started working out, um, right around, let's say the late seventies, the running craze started going. So nobody was really running or going to the gym much or anything before that. The exercise thing, I mean, for the younger people may not know, but the exercise thing is pretty new, really. I mean, mm. um, you know, when I was growing up, no, nobody did that. I mean, my parents and, you know, the older people, nobody went to gyms or did anything like that. Um, in any case, I got into running and I, I enjoyed it. And it, it was very much uh, touted as the best thing to do, you know, for exercise. Uh, eventually, I became a vegetarian and then a vegan for the reason that everything that I was hearing was saying, you know, saturated fat causes heart disease. And sure. so you want, don't want to eat a lot of meat. So I thought that was the healthiest thing to do. And uh, I did okay for a while. And then, you know, eventually, this is, this is over quite a few years that I'm talking mm. about, but eventually um, I became ill. And I uh, eventually with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. So this is one of those things that you can go to doctors for, and they don't, you know, they don't know what's going on. They, they can't find abnormal lab results or anything all that abnormal with you. Um, some of them will accuse you of malingering. Um, others just kind of give up and say, well, I don't know what's wrong. Anyway, I, I had this for a number of years. Uh, and yeah, I, I did find a good doctor eventually who would work with me but that was difficult and uh eventually i thought that if i was going to get over this uh, and get well i would have to figure it out for myself or try to figure it out for myself sure. so I, I do uh my my back my educational background i have a degree in microbiology and biochemistry and i've studied pharmacology at graduate level um so i have a you know decent background for it and you know, I just decided to start, you know, reading and reading in the scientific literature and so on, to see if I could make any sense of what was going on. And it wasn't long be before I did. And um, so uh, one of the first things I figured out was I had to quit being a vegan. Um, and that was actually kind of shocking to me because, uh, you know, I always thought because I'd been told that this is the healthiest way to be and so on. And so anyway, I quit, quit being vegan and made some other changes. And before long, I was feeling better. And, um, then, uh, I started lifting weights. I, you know, I, I had figured out also that running was not the optimal thing to be doing in terms of exercise. Uh, so, 
um, I started lifting weights and it was pretty hard at first because I had been ill for so many years, but I, I just kept at it. And before too long, I realized I needed heavier weights. And so I joined a gym and uh, got better, put on a lot of muscle just in the first year that I was doing that. I was pretty underweight at the time. Um, and then I, I had, you know, along the way with all this, I had thought, you know, gee, if I, you know, if I ever figure out how to get over chronic fatigue, I, I need to write about this, I need to write a book about it. Um, so I did, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, when I got better, I remembered that I thought, wait a minute. So I got better. And so, okay, I'll write that book. So I wrote a relatively short ebook and put it up on Amazon. And then it was like, well, okay, what do I do now? Well, I guess I'll, I'll keep writing. Um, mm -hmm. So I did. And uh, then I, you know, I have my, I've, I've written a number of books. I have my website, as you know, I'm very active on Twitter. Yep. Um, so I, I guess that wraps it up. That's how I got where I am right now. No, that's a really, really interesting story. You know, um, I've got a ton of questions <laughs> based on that overview. So I'm going to start right back at the, we're going to start, but I, just a question which popped in. What, what era, whenabouts did you, um, become vegetarian and uh, you know, turn towards veganism. Uh, what was the sort of the main sticking points towards why you moved in that direction in the first place kind of, and you know, what was the influences behind that? Well, uh, so this would have been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, somewhere around uh, the late, late 1980s or something when I did this and the impetus to do this was just, um, you know, I, I was, as I say, I was interested in health and fitness, but I was reading secondary sources, um, reading more or less mainstream stuff, very, you know, or various sort of health gurus, uh, this kind of thing. And many of them were urging that, um, that veganism was the way to go. Um, also, aside from the fact that these particular people were saying this, it was just unquestioned dogma from the mainstream that saturated fat was bad for you and that, you know, animal foods, whether meat or dairy or eggs are full of saturated fat. So, you know, if you want to avoid heart disease, which I definitely did want to avoid, then you should stay away from them. Um, so that, that was how I got into it. Um, and you know, there was, in, until I started really digging deeper on my own, there was nothing that, you know, that would persuade me otherwise that, that sure. this was, this was not the way to go. I mean, I realize now this, this might be getting a, a little ahead of the story or, or what you want to ask, but, mm. uh, I realize now that the, the paradigm of, the, the paleolithic paradigm or the evolutionary paradigm, human evolutionary paradigm is, is a very powerful way to look at things. Um, so, you know, I hadn't, you know, in, in let's say 2008, thereabouts, um, there was a lot of talk about the paleo diet and so on. I found that all very interesting and, it, you know, eventually did something very similar myself, but, but I didn't really think of it until later that that's, how how 
that really puts a lot of um, the answers to questions in perspective. So for example, like say this, this idea of veganism, there's never been a culture or society in history that's been vegan as far as we know, never, ever. And, you know, and if possibly there was one that we don't know about, it's disappeared either, you know, either conquered by some other nation or died off or, you know, who knows so um, that, you know, even, that's even, all. even evolved kind of, right? Like even if it's a different uh, species before human beings in terms of post Neanderthals and stuff, it could easily have just evolved as well. Right, right. So, um, you know, so looking, looking at this way, you know, the, the evolutionary or paleolithic paradigm, when you think about this, that human beings have been eating meat, you know, it depends on how you're going to define humans, of course, how long sure. you're going to go back, but let's say a couple of million years. Um, so humans have been eating meat for a couple of million years and um, they thrived on it. They spread all over the world on it. And the idea that all of a sudden in the 20th century, this meat is causing people to drop dead of heart disease really doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so this, this is not a, you know, like a super microscopic scientific, you know, way to look at it. But, but, you know, backing off, you can, you can see, well, yeah, that that really that really means that veganism doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, that if if human beings have have survived and thrived on on a diet that's definitely not veganism, mm. then you know why why is it causing problems now? Why is it the healthiest way to eat? We human beings thrive on the way that we were evolved to eat. I mean, it'd be like. Um, you know, if you if you took a frog out into the desert, it's not going to do well. That's not its environment. Um, you know, if you, if you or if you try to, um, you know, if you try to feed a lion uh, wheat or something mm. like that, you know, it's not it's not going to thrive. It, you know, sure. each each species has its own niche, whether it's diet or their environment as a whole. Human beings are no different. Um, we need the right inputs to be healthy. Absolutely. I mean, the reason I asked that question, first of all, I was intrigued because I think, in, I think there's been a boom recently over the last decade or so uh, on vegetarianism and veganism. Um, but a lot of it is not, um, it's not purely based down on sort of health effects. A lot of it is, but a lot of it is also too environmentally. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of the, the thing I'm thinking about if we're talking about the evolutionary cycle, like this is now maybe a focus of a lot of people's mindset. Not, not, not a lot of people say, oh, it's healthier. A lot of people will, but a lot of people also say environmentally based on, you know, access to documentaries on Netflix and Amazon Prime and this that, and the other. So I was intrigued as to why you got into it like well before the, the craze, if you like. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, it has come up a lot again recently, just even in the last, say five years seemingly um and especially for environmental aspects um i am not an expert in you know the environmental aspects sure. but i think that um you know from everything i've read i you know i reject the idea that meat is somehow um 
you know, an environmental catastrophe or bad for the environment or something. I mean, it, you know, everything I've read, um, like for instance, as far as um, greenhouse gases, I mean, mm. um, oil and gas production and their use seems to be like just a far higher source of these greenhouse gases and so on. Mon you know, monocrop farming, you know, basically like your field of wheat with tractors and everything, like there's so much in the Midwestern United States, um, which, you know, that's what veganism boils down to. Um, that's what's bad for the environment. Um, animal agriculture is more in tune with the environment as far as, um, you know, in tune with the earth, making, uh, you know, environmental diversity um, friendlier to the other animals and, and organisms in the environment. That's how I see it. Mm, no, fair enough. Awesome. All right. Um, moving across the timeline of your um, sort of uh, quote-unquote life story we were talking about earlier, um, let's move on to the, the more difficult aspect during the, um, the chronic fatigue stage, right, when, you, when you're, you know, the rise of that illness um, occurred. What, what sort of change did you sort of witness in yourself? Like, what made you sort of stand up and take notice? Because... I, I'm not. I'm not knocking the illness whatsoever. I'm just trying to say it's one of those which is really, in my opinion, it seems really hard to diagnose. Not just sort of medically, but as you're, you know, self-prescribed sort of be, being self-aware of it. Because so many people get tired daily for whatever reason, you know, based on their lifestyle. It seems like it, there must be some really drastic, uh, you know, rises in symptoms, if you like. So I'm just intrigued. How did that sort of come about? Right. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. Fatigue is that that's a thing. I mean, fatigue, I mean, I read this a long time ago. I'm not sure how much it applies now, but fatigue is supposedly the most common complaint that people go to, go to see a doctor about. They walk in, Hey doc, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. How do you distinguish that? Well, for me, I, I was pretty fit. And up until that point, I was still running and exercising daily. Um, and then, you know, one day I didn't feel well. I, you know, I felt like kind of a sore throat and I felt tired and I thought, well, maybe I'm coming down with a cold and uh, I'll just, I'll just, you know, take a few days off from, from training, you know, and just wait. Sure. But, but what happened was I never got better. Um, so, you know, we're talking, we're talking now, you know, weeks go by then a month or two months. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, you know, what's going on here? As far as, as far as the level of fatigue, um, you really, now some, some people, you know, when, when I've read about chronic fatigue syndrome of what some people have, some people have some pretty serious stuff, like not being able to get out of bed, basically. Um, so, you know, fortunately for me, I, I was never at that level. I, I think you can say when, you know, if somebody is at that level, there's definitely something wrong. Sure. I mean, as, as, as for me, yeah, I, I just, I just wanted to sit in my chair. Um, I tried to, you know, as far as exercise goes, I would walk daily, but if I walked, you know, more than 20, 30 minutes, I would be extra tired for days, that kind of thing. Um, and so another thing is that, right, when you go to a doctor about this, most of them don't know what to say. A lot of, if you read some of the medical literature, 
about this. Um, a, there's a lot of um, <clears throat> there's a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's a it's a psychiatric thing. They're malingering. They they just you know just get over it, or they need psychological counseling, or you know this oh. kind of thing, because yeah. um, because they can you know rarely find something physiological wrong you know with these people. So. Um, it is very difficult to diagnose. They, they refer to chronic fatigue syndrome as a diagnosis of exclusion. So what, in other words, so if you go to a doctor complaining of fatigue, the doctor will examine you, run a bunch of tests and everything to, you know, to see if, there's, if they can figure out there's something wrong because you know, fatigue could be anything from a common cold to cancer. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, they want to, you know, check it all out. And, and uh, you know, some basic tests will uncover a whole lot of that. Um, and if they can't find anything, you know, eventually, uh, you know, they might say, well, you have chronic fatigue syndrome or, you know, more, more likely they'll say, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. And why don't you leave my office now and, <laughs> and, and don't, don't come back. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it goes. I I did like I told you I I did find a a good doctor, but he mm. was a you know he was a real kind of alternative type. Um, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And mm. yeah, and and willing to work. You know, he he was like, well, if if you're willing to come back to my office, I'll I'll keep working with you. You know, so I kept going back, and he was helpful. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's great to see you're fit and healthy, obviously. Um, and that's quality that you got gotten over that. Um, you know what? Um, something you wrote on your website, <clears throat> excuse me, um, roguehealthandfitness.com, uh, with regards to the, the chronic fatigue and how you sort of decided to do your own research and uh, quote unquote, create your own interventions, right? This is something which I'm, I mean, I'm quite intrigued by. What, what does that not, not, not sort of mean, but what did that sort of entail for you like was it kind of like experimental like, i need to try something like this like maybe uh, you know change this part of my diet or lifestyle and you know implement something new like what kind of things did you try and what was it oh i think we know what you found which worked but what kind of things how long did that process take you, you, you know get through yeah right so you know uh diet was really important um and and i that that's the one way that that my you know my thinking has evolved now how it's it's just so important in everything in in every aspect of health mm. it, it, as far as any kind of chronic illness is concerned so um you know one one of the things i first realized is that i was probably not getting enough protein um and and you know vegan diets typically are pretty low in protein so i changed that um and and then, as I mentioned, I started, I was interested in the paleolithic diet because it made a lot of sense to me. So no, no processed foods, no, no, no foods that um, would not have been eaten by uh, a human being 20,000 years ago, let's say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've modified that um, now it's not it's not all exactly the same but you know that made sense to me um but even the first uh even the first 
iterations of the paleo diet that I was looking at, they were, you know, there was still some concern about saturated fat, right? So I, I was trying to eat this sort of low fat version of paleo and I was just starving all the time. I, you know, just <laughs> really hungry, you know? <laughs> And, and then, so I looked more into it and I real, you know, then, then came this whole thing about saturated fat. I realized that, um, it, it wasn't what they said it was. And now, you know, at this point in time in 20, the year 2020, there's a lot of scientific evidence that saturated fat is, is not what they say it is. It doesn't cause heart disease and so on. But Eventually, I went to a more uh, more towards the way that I eat now, which is um, you know pretty low carbish, um, pretty heavy on the meat and eggs and fish, some dairy, um, that sort of thing. Um, so, but it's been a it's been quite a while since I've been doing that. So I you know pretty much in the beginning, I I quickly um, you know transitioned into that way of eating. I mean, I was I was doing things maybe at the at first like adding protein, like um, using whey protein powder, for example, on top of my regular diet. Sure. And um, you know, I I realize now that's not optimal. Um, but I'd say the you know the process of getting to where I am and trying different things was relatively quickly. It, it happened relatively quickly as as far as. The, you know, the exercise and training aspect of it. Um, I, I wanted to lift weights and I wanted to grow muscle, but as I was doing it and reading more about it and, and studying this whole issue, um, I, I came to the realization that, you know, really this is the optimal form of exercise that everybody should be doing it. Um, and, and that this is, this, you know, this is another thing whole different area but this is another thing that you don't hear from mainstream health sources i mean to them lifting weights is something that you know the bros in the gym do um and and they don't they don't necessarily say much about it you know they have this uh, fixation on aerobic exercise and so on um so you know between the diet and exercise those those were the two you know, the two main things that I tried to get better. And it didn't take long either. I mean, I, I, I saw results right away when, no, I, when I stopped doing what I was doing yeah. before. So, so you didn't try anything else. It was, it was purely straight into sort of the mentality of diet and exercise. Let me switch those up and, you know, sort of trial and error with those. There wasn't any sort of other outside um, lifestyle changes you, you thought you might give a well, go. Um, you know, there, you know, looking back on it, there were, yes, there, you know, there were some other things that were maybe more inadvertent. Um, like for one thing, all this time when I was, uh, when I was ill, I was still working. I still managed to hold down a job. Fortunately, my job, you know, was, didn't require a lot of heavy physical activity or anything. Um, but I did, I, I did a lot of shift work. So I, I'd work, uh, you know, until 1130 at night. Um, I did that a lot. Um, then, you know, later on, I, it was a, a little bit better where I was only working till 930 at night in the evening. Still um, is not. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, you're, you're in an environment where, um, 
you know, it's not necessarily like super late as far as, I mean, so, you know, the graveyard shifts, that's sure. what we used to call them anyway. Yeah, those, yeah. those are really bad, you know, mm -hmm. so I've, I've done plenty of those in my life too, working so, all night long. Those will, those will really mess you up in a hurry. Um, but as far as just uh, working these late shifts, you know, you're, you're in, in my case, in a, in a laboratory um, under fluorescent lights, let's say it's 11 o'clock at night, what are you doing there? I mean, it, it's, it's a very unnatural situation for your health. <laughs> I mean, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't think I even really thought about it much at the time, but you know, since then, since I'm not doing that anymore and haven't done that in a long time, I've looked back and I've thought, you know, I wonder how much of my problems was due to that. It, it's difficult to sleep. Um, you know, I mean, I would, I would always wake up too early in the morning, you know, and, and have trouble going to sleep at night and all this kind of stuff. And when you're doing that five days a week, um, you know, it, it takes its toll. Yeah, there's, absolutely. there's some, uh, you know, there's some research on shift work and how it affects health and it's, mm. it's definitely not good. Absolutely. No, that's a really, really good point, actually. Um, what were the, I'm just trying to phrase this correctly. What were, what were some of the, the biggest challenges you found sticking with the subject? Like when you were making this change, like in your lifestyle, what were the biggest challenges you sort of found? What, did you find it difficult to move away from your change in, you know, lifestyle, whether it be uh, fitness or uh, food? Because food, I can imagine, would have been quite a big one going from veganism or vegetarianism to uh, a more meat-based diet. And fitness, you already said you were still training quite, you know, quite a bit, so that might, might not have been so uh, prevalent. But what, what, in your opinion, were the biggest sort of challenges you faced trying to get over this illness and uh, changing your lifestyle? So, well, I think as far as the diet aspect goes, you know, the the transition that I made was pretty quick. Um, you know, once I decided to do it, I did it. And, um, you know, at first, like I said, when I was first thinking about all this, it was, it was difficult to wrap my mind around that this was the way to go. And then, but once I decided to do it, I just did it. And as far as, uh, you know, the training went, I, I actually had not been training at all. So for, for in, okay. in the 11 years that I had this illness, I, I didn't train at all other than some walking because I wanted to keep it, you know, I didn't want to be just sitting all the time. I wanted to be as active as I possibly could. So I would just walk. But so once I started the training, um, again, that was pretty quick. It, it was, um, you know, it was a matter of, you know, me thinking, well, I don't know if I can do this or is this the right thing to do? Is this going to make me feel worse? Um, this kind of thing. But I just kept at it and, uh, and you know, and eventually felt a lot better and just kept going. Mm. No, that's fair enough. Um, so, all right, Mr. Mangan, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you, something you mentioned uh, in your previous statement about optimal exercise. Um, I'm assuming we were talking about weightlifting and all that. Um, so you were a big runner before, so cardio and uh, you know resistance training. Do you feel that um, it's either one or the other, or do you find that it's better to have a balance of the two to get the optimal if you like, like what, what in your opinion is sort of the best sort of strategy going forward? Right. So that, that's, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, what, what that, 
what most people, most experts will tell you about how exercise relates to your health is, is all about cardiovascular fitness. So they, you know, uh, for example, VO2 max, which is the maximum amount of oxygen you can take up, you know, ex maximal exercise um, is correlated with health. And so, you know, they've always recommended this kind of aerobic exercise. Um, but um, weight training builds muscle and it also works your cardiovascular system. And um, so you know, what happens as we age is that we lose muscle, right? So this, this is, I mean, it, it, it starts relatively young. It's when somebody's in their thirties, it can be measured that they're losing muscle and accelerates and such that by the time someone is quite old, they can have lost half the muscle mass that, that they had when they were young. And so that all correlates with a decline in health. So I, you know, I believe that's totally necessary to, to do strength training of some kind for men and women, no matter how old you are. Um, as far as, uh, so I do, I do a form of weight training that is known as high intensity resistance training. And it, it is also an incredible cardiovascular workout. So, you know, depending on how you define cardio, I don't do any. Um, I mean, on on my, on the days that I'm not training with weights, I I go for a fairly leisurely walk. So if you want to call that cardio, you know, maybe, but that's that's it. But when I'm doing my weight training, I am breathing hard. My heart is going very quickly. Um, it's it's a it's a different style of training from you know conventional weight training. So you know if you go into the gym, you know a typical thing will be someone doing a set of exercise, a, a, a one set of of an exercise, and then sit down for a minute or two, and mm -hmm. then go back and do another set, and and so on. So the way I do it is differently is, is different. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very high intensity. It, this also gets into questions about whether VO2 max is really the best way to measure cardiovascular fitness. Um, you know, there, there are people out there whose opinions I respect that say, no, that it isn't. Um, and so, you know, I'm convinced that the way that I'm, you know, while I, while I do try to keep an open mind, I'm convinced that the way I'm doing things is optimal. I don't think that anybody needs to do, um, you know, aerobic exercise at, you know, as, as, you know, people conventionally consider it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I mean, the way you describe the weight training, it's like, it's almost like a form of hit, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. using resistance as opposed to a traditional cardio uh, methodology. Like you said, you're taking a couple of minutes break or a minute break, whatever it may be in between. And then your heart's racing again, kind of trying to lift whatever weights you're trying to do. Um, yeah, it's interesting uh, outlook on things, to be honest, because like you said, I think this, the stigma is placed a lot upon cardiovascular um, uh, exercises, right? Just to keep as a general health perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one thing I had to ask was, all right, so with health and fitness, um, people are usually, uh, they're kind of shocked or they're a bit like, 
well, you know, they're taken aback when I guess they see slightly older people in better shapes than themselves, right? <laughs> they're like, <laughs> they're, they're like um, this, this, this can't be right. I mean, what are they doing? They're either cheating or they're doing this, that, and the other. I mean, in your opinion, should this be rare or is it simply something that society needs to realize it's available to everyone, whatever your age, whatever your sort of demographic, you know what I mean? Like, is it that hard to, to produce these kind of results at a, at a later stage in your life? Yeah, so, you know, definitely the latter. It shouldn't be rare. It should be more expected. Um, I, you know, I, I get, I, you know, people compliment me on being in shape and everything um, fairly regularly, and I'm grateful. You know, that's really nice to hear and everything. I'm 65 mm. years old, and um, people think, yeah, wow, you know, <laughs> 65, you know, you shouldn't look like that. And honestly... Um, I don't see why not. Um, so, I mean, I, I train, I do weight training twice a week. My current workouts take me no more than 30 minutes and, and usually less, usually 25 minutes, let's say. Um, so twice a week. However, I, I do it without fail. Um, you know, so, so it's not like, um, Oh, I don't feel like going to the gym today or, you know, this kind of thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is my diet. So, um, I, I don't, I don't feel like what I do takes discipline. Honestly, it's my way of life. And, um, so I don't have garbage food in my house, so I'm not tempted to eat it. And I'm, you know, even if I'm, Elsewhere, I'm rarely tempted to eat it either because I, you know, I value being in shape and, um, and, and I value my health. So it's, it's, it's my lifestyle. I, I, I've often said to people that, you know, if, if you use the, the, you know, the default environment around you, if you exceed to the default environment, you, you're going to be in the same shape everybody else is in that you need to create your own environment. Um, you know, uh, you know, fortunately I'm able to do that. Um, and I don't have a, you know, a lot of, um, outside, uh, you know, pressure, if you like, maybe that's too strong a word, but outside pressure to, you know, to conform to here, you got to eat this or something like that. And, and frankly, I, you know, I, I totally enjoy the way I live. I love working out. Um, I, I actually sometimes have to stop myself from doing more of it than I think is good for me because it is a very fatiguing thing that I, that I do and, and you need proper rest and so on, but I love it. And I like eating the way I do. I, I'm not tempted to eat pizza or donuts or, you know, it, it doesn't, to me, it's just not worth it. So anyway, I, I guess I, I'm getting a little long winded, winded and digressing here, but no, no. To, get, to get to your, you know, to your point, there's no reason that anybody couldn't do it. Uh, what I'm doing, I don't, I don't, I'm not an athlete. I don't spend, you know, extraordinary amounts of time doing what I'm doing uh, as far as staying in shape. There's, there's just absolutely no reason that, that most everybody couldn't do it. No, fair enough. That's, yeah, that's interesting stuff. Um, I mean, one question I do have is, is, is about, 
or surrounding injuries, I guess, because I know the human body as it is, I guess the old you get, the more susceptible I'm assuming. You know what I mean, just simple things like your joints or muscles, tendons, whatever. I mean, I mean I've already experienced it. I mean, like 10 years ago, I was pretty much injury free. Now I'm, you know, I'm battered left, right and center like half the time. But um, how do you sort of cope with that? Or is that something you think is down to the individual, maybe your genes or your, like you said, your lifestyle, you know, how do you sort of manage that? Yeah, interesting question. So, um, you know, obviously, obviously, if someone has an injury of of some of any kind, then then they are going to have to, you know, work around that somehow. Sure. So I don't want to, you know, kind of no, yeah. minimize the idea that you know that hey, you know, why aren't you in there? No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Doing three hundred pound yeah. deadlifts, right? But um, so that that leads to. Uh, the point is that my belief is that in weight training or any kind of exercise for that matter, the number one consideration is that you should not get injured. And um, so it's, it's real, you know, the mindset in conventional weight training, you know, seems to be that, um, you know, you're going to get injured every now and then it's just part of the game. Uh, you can't avoid it. And, and I, I don't agree with that. You, sh you shouldn't ever get injured. Um, you know, if you, if you were an athlete, for example, athletes get injured a lot and that's because they're really pushing to extremes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, leave that, leave that to one side. We'll talk about the, you know, non-athletes who just want to be in shape. So, you know, one, one of the, the, the way that most people get injured in the weight room is by lifting a weight that's too heavy for them and that you know they're not able to control in good form so mm -hmm. there's a lot of that going on there's a lot of ego lifting um <laughs> you know and and uh you know showing off and you know they would they wouldn't present it as showing off but in fact you know there's other people in the gym hey they're watching so you know um absolutely right so you know i believe in doing this in a way that ab absolutely avoids injury I believe that diet is also important as far as your propensity to get injured. Um, you know, certainly as people age, uh, they, you know, have, have a greater likelihood, you know, your body's more fragile as you age. Um, but uh, I think that it's possible to do it for, for basically anyone to do it with, you know, without getting injured. Mm. That's a really good point. Um, so something you mentioned earlier about anti-aging and around that, um, could you elaborate more on that in sense of um, what kind of things you do besides the, you know, resistance training, weightlifting, et cetera? What, what's the kind of si more sciencey stuff behind it, which you believe in and which you can, you know, maybe tell listeners more about? Sure. Um, yeah. So, so the, the science of aging is, is fascinating. Um, there's, there's been just tons of work done with lab animals as far as, um, you know, what, what is it that makes, can make them live longer. Um, one of the most robust interventions, and this has been known for a long time, almost 100 years now, one of the most robust interventions that will extend the life of lab animals, such as mice or rats, or even, even bigger animals, is calorie restriction. So if you take take a take mice or something and you feed them 
quite a bit less than they would like to eat, they live longer. And um, you know, this is this is somewhat counterintuitive. When they first discovered this, it was definitely counter counterintuitive. They weren't expecting to find this. Um, so the thing is, in in uh, human beings, calorie restriction is very difficult and really not necessarily desirable anyway. Um, it it's with with these animals that that they calorie restrict they're hungry all the time they you know, when they're fed they feed they eat all their food at once because they're so hungry um, and you don't want to go through life that way um, there are people that do it um, that you know they carefully weigh all their food and and so on and they're very lean um, but you know they report things like they're cold all the time they have low libido all this kind of stuff so how do you get around this problem Right. So how, how do you the answer is seems to be intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is just going, you know, without food for some given period of time. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, different fasting regimens. Every, you know, lots of people do various different things. Some people fast 16 hours a day. That's a real common way. Mm. That's something close to what I, I try to do often. Sure. Um, other people will do extended fast and so on. So that's, that's a pretty solid, um, anti-aging intervention as far as, um, you know, other things. So one thing that happens when human beings age is they get metabolically less healthy, which means they, they can't handle put it to put it as simple as possible maybe oversimplifying but they can't handle food as well um they tend so they tend to increase get an, have an increase in body fat a decrease in muscle there they can't um it, all the changes that happen in human beings as they age basically mirror the changes that are seen in obesity and to a greater extent diabetes so blood sugar control for example so the way to to slow aging the most is to be lean and muscular and metabolically healthy um, so um, that means that um, bas basically you know, in our society now with the, with the obesity epidemic, this is, this is mirroring aging. It's basically a form of speeding up aging. So, you know, that's, that's the way to do it. So, you know, intermittent fasting, um, weight training, a healthy diet, um, of, you know, real whole foods, preferably relatively low in carbohydrates, all those things um, are conducive to slowing aging. Now, there are other things, like you said, more, you know, more sciencey stuff that, you know, scientists are working on. It's difficult to test a lot of these in humans. Sure. I mean, you can test some of these things in humans and see what happens, but obviously you can't take a group of humans and split them into two groups and say, you're going to do this for the rest of your life and we're going to see how long it takes you to die, right? <laughs> it's just like impossible to do something like that so you've got to look at you know look at other things either look at lab animals and very carefully 
try to figure out how that yeah. might apply to humans. Or you can do studies on humans that might last a year or two and see, you know, look at their lab markers and so on. And, and a fair amount of this has been done. Sure. Um, so, you know, there, there are scientists that are looking at drugs uh, and other chemicals that will uh, slow aging. Um, you know, but for now, the, the ways that I just mentioned by staying lean and muscular, doing weight training, staying in shape, eating a healthy diet, getting some sunshine and fresh air, um, all these things are, are what um, counteracts aging the most. Bas basically, the things that you, you know, that you would otherwise do to stay healthy. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm really intrigued by um, the way we talk about diet and there's so many different lifestyle choices out there at the moment. Um, you know what I mean? Like you're saying veganism, vegetarianism, paleo, uh, I don't know, you know, there's so many, but it all boils down to what we were taught at school, like myself, maybe slightly younger, slightly younger than yourself, but I don't know how far back it goes, but that sort of food pyramid. Um, in your opinion, how, how did that sort of come about and why is it so detrimental? Because it just doesn't seem right when you look at it to like the human societies that rate uh, as a sort of healthy, you know, living it. Like, why is that still prevalent? Or do you know I mean, like, I'm just trying to get a sense of your taking, like, um, you know, where did it come from and how yeah, detrimental like, is like, it? Like what went wrong? What, basically, what basically. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's, such yeah. a, it's such an important thing. Right. And it, like you said, definitely went wrong. A absolutely. Absolutely. A lot went wrong. I mean, in, in the, let's say, you know, in the, in the 1960s and early 70s, when I was young, um, there was no obesity epidemic. It was, you know, relatively uncommon. And now it's just, you know, spread like wildfire. Mm. wildfire. So basically what, what happened, you know, this, this is, uh, again, a, a, a simple look at it, but this is a lot of what happened, is that getting back to that whole saturated fat thing right so in in the 1950s and 1960s you had a heart disease epidemic in the united states and you had people basically um you know desperately looking for the answer what is going on i mean in 19 i think it was 55 the year i was born um president eisenhower had a heart attack wow. and yeah and so you know this was like front page news for months, you know, President Eisenhower had a heart attack. And then everybody's talking about, you know, why did he have a heart attack and what's going on? Um, it, you know, interesting fact is that up until about five years before Eisenhower had his heart attack, he was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. I mean, you know, he was, he, he was uh, you know, leading the allies in Europe in World War II. That's a kind of a stressful job. And so. Sure, know, sure, sure. But how, right. many, how many people were smoking that much back in those days, right? Based on like the right. advertisement and the lack of medical um, knowledge and all that, I'm guessing, right? It must have been quite high. Right, it was. So, you know, by, by, the, t by the time smoking peaked in the, in the mid-60s, it was something like 60% of American adults were cigarette smokers. Mm. 
Um, and it's now, you know, for comparison, it's now down to like 15%. So yeah, it was, it was huge. Yeah. In, in any case, the people that were the doctors and the scientists that were looking at this issue of heart attacks fixed upon cholesterol as the problem. And they decided really without very good evidence that, you know, cholesterol caused, caused arteries to clog and that the way you got increased cholesterol was by eating a diet high in saturated fat. And of course, meat and animal foods are high in saturated fat. Um, and so eventually it, by, by the time th this, this ball got rolling as far as, you know, oh, you should lower your cholesterol. You should um, not eat so much meat. You should eat polyunsaturated fats, not saturated fats. And this, this kept going until by the late seventies, there was um, an official US government committee set up to look at dietary guidelines and they recommended a low fat diet. Um, and, and so by this was 1977, um, which is usually, you know, you could date that as about the beginning of the obesity epidemic. So people started not eating so much of the foods they were eating before because they thought it was going to give them a heart attack. And they started eating all these low fat things, which are necessarily high in carbohydrates. Uh, the food companies put a lot of sugar into things because people don't, you know, things without fat in them don't taste mm. too good unless you do something like that. Absolutely. Um, uh, Pete, right. sorry, so, just, to just to jump in, sorry. Do you also think uh, um, accumulation of that is sort of down to the rise in the maybe uh, the fast food industry at that, during that sort of period where it's cheaper, you know what I mean, cheaper food for maybe more low-income people where that's what they will feed their sort of families. And those foods are obviously are high in a lot of garbage, let's say, right? They're not, like you said, whole foods and this and the other. So is that not a test to maybe uh, slightly, you know, some of that issues as well? Absolutely. Yeah, fast food certainly contributes to it. Um, what, one of the things about so many of the foods that, that we eat that are in our modern food supply that cause ill health and lead to obesity is that they're cheap. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the, the three ingredients that I usually finger for causing all these problems, which, which are highly prevalent in fast food, like you say, are in, at least in the context of the Western world, white flour, sugar, and vegetable oils, or as, as I refer to them, seed oils. So these, these ingredients are all very cheap. Um, and so that contributes to their using a lot of them in fast food, it's, it's cheap food. Um, as far as the uh, processed food goes, the, the stuff that's in boxes and bags that, that the big food companies make, that stuff is immensely profitable in part because the ingredients are so cheap. Um, you, you know, they can, they can slap, a, they can put these ingredients together in some form, slap a brand name on them and advertise it. And then people pay high prices for it. I mean, like a box of breakfast cereal, um, that might, I don't know, I haven't bought breakfast cereal in decades, I think, but <laughs> you know, I think it might, it might retail for $5, let's say in a supermarket here. Um, you know, the, the actual food 
you know, the actual food ingredients in that box of cereal might only be five or 10 cents worth. It's just, it's just ground up corn or wheat and made First of all, this, chemicals or something. Yeah, right. And add some sugar, which is also mm -hmm. really cheap. And, and there you go. So yeah, the, you know, the fast food, the, the, the cheapness of it all def definitely contributes. No, but uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting that stuff, man. But yeah, they've got people hooked, right? That's the problem. Like you said, with sugar, especially that's a very addictive substance. So once you're hooked on it, it's kind of a very difficult turn around, turn away from it. Absolutely. Uh, mm. the, the, you know, they, they, I mean, they've been there, they've looked at, for example, rats in the laboratory and, and in some, some study or other, they found that, you know, rats would prefer sugar to cocaine. Um, you know, so yeah, it's addictive stuff. I mean, and, and especially, you know, the combination of carbs, carbs and or sugar, sugar is of course a form of carbohydrate, but carbs or sugar, plus fat is this combination that just, you know, hits the reward centers of your brain. Trifectors. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sugar plus fat is dessert, you know, it's sweets <laughs> and pastries and pies and cakes and, you know, carbs plus fat is, you know, pizza, mm. stuff like that. People love, people love all that stuff. It's hard to stay away from. It's, it's even more hard because it hits those sort of hormones and glands which just make you feel a certain mannerism, do you know what I mean? So that's the hardest thing to sort of pull away from. It's really difficult. Right, right. And, and you know, human beings seem to be set up hardwired, if, if, if you will, to, you know, to seek out calories, right? So, I mean, in the course of uh, evolutionary history, you know, food was presumably in relatively short supply. When there was food around, you ate it. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's food around all the time and there's there, this kind of food, like I've just been talking about, isn't particularly satisfying to your hunger. It just makes you hungrier. And so people are eating it. It's hard to stay away from. No, absolutely. All right. Uh, Mr. Mangan, um, I had a couple more questions. I actually wanted to, I wanted to go through your books actually. Um, but before we do that, I had a couple more questions if that's all right. Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of talk around uh, vitamin, vitamins and supplements at the moment. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts? I know, I know it's a generic question, but what are your thought of, sort of thoughts on any specific vitamins or anything like that, which, which might help you um, either with anti-aging process or general health or, you know, anything which solves that? Because I've, I've read a lot about this and I'm a big advocate for certain vitamins, but I'm just intrigued to hear your thoughts about them. Yeah, well, it, for sure, it's a it's a big topic. Um, my my general feeling is, and and I do take some of these myself, some of these supplements. My, my general feeling is that you know healthy diet comes first, and the way that I look at certain supplements and vitamins is, I, I look at them as insurance. So you know to make sure, uh, I'll give you one example. So I take a, I take vitamin K two. So vitamin K2 is important in keeping your arteries free of calcium, right? So it's something like, I really want to make sure I'm getting enough of this. And it's, it's relatively hard to come by in a diet. It's like, it's found in large amounts in, in 
grass pasture dairy products, for example. So, you know, I don't get a lot of grass pasture, pasture dairy products. I don't really know how much of this I'm getting. So, you know, I want to take this stuff. So, I, I yeah. want to make sure my <laughs> arteries are going to be clear. So that's, that's one example. Um, um, but, but so in general, you know, with a healthy diet, um, you know, most people shouldn't need much, if any, there, there are other issues, for example, that, you know, soil has become depleted of minerals, for example. So even if you're trying to eat as healthy as you can, maybe you're not getting enough of certain things like magnesium. That's one. Um, and so, yeah, there, you know, there, there are certainly things like that, that, um, can be important. Um, I, I don't, I think people should look at their diet first and get, you know, get that as healthy as they can before they're looking at supplements. Also not to supplement just sort of, um, you know, willy nilly, but really take a look at what, yeah. what is it I need and, and just do that. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Now that's a good, that's a good point actually. Cause a lot of these uh, supplements as well and vitamins, uh, wherever you buy them from, they've got a lot of added stuff in to preserve their sort of, shape whether it be pill form or liquid form and all that and that that could be detrimental to you so like you said the, the best source is probably more natural nutritional sources right right um all right so one more question i had uh, before we go into the books was the um i think you you touched upon it earlier and we, I, you know i sort of tried it down because i was quite intrigued is the kind of the business change that you went through so pre um pre everything that you went to and you, you know, you changed into uh, your focus, more health and fitness uh, directional. What were you doing before that? I know you touched upon it earlier, like in a lab and all that, but you know, for, for our listeners out there, what were you doing before and how much has that sort of changed now? And you know, was that, there must've been some risk factors involved in that, right? When you up, upheave a career, I'm assuming like, was that quite difficult to, to do? Um, well, yeah, so I I worked in clinical laboratories uh, most of my adult life. Uh, that's you know that's what I got the education for, and as a microbiologist, um, so that that kind of career is very. Um, I mean, looking back over it, I can't complain about it because it was a secure job. I mean, I was always able to get a. a decent, well-paying job, you know, it was never, never, never a problem that way. Unlike, you know, so many people who have been in industries where there've been mass layoffs and this sure. kind of thing. I mean, healthcare has done nothing but expand since I've been mm. young, right? It's but, but, just got bigger and bigger. So I've been involved in it. And so it hasn't been a problem. Um, it hasn't been the most exciting field to be in when you're, when you're there eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, year after year. Um, so as far as um, what I've done, you know, I started writing my books. I started, um, um, you know, my, I started my website um, and so on. And so I, you know, I started making some money doing that. Um, and at first it wasn't very much, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it, it got to the point where, um, it was getting pretty good. Um, and however, you know, simultaneously, I'm getting to the age where most people retire. 
uh, at least from their regular jobs. That's true. Yep. Um, yeah. And so, you know, honestly, for me, it didn't require any, uh, you know, huge courageous leap to into what I'm doing. It was like, I, I mean, I figured I'd be working a few years more doing my, doing the old stuff, what I was doing. And then all of a sudden I found out, well, gee, I, you know, I don't have to work a few years more there and I'd rather spend my time doing this. But of course, by the time I, I, I came to that point, I was already 64, you know, so, oh, yeah. um, you know, I spent, I spent my life doing that. I mean, I look at these young guys on, on what they call money Twitter, you know, and, and everybody's, you know, they're, they're talking about their side hustles or, or their main hustles and, you know, what they're doing and everything. And I, I really, I really admire those guys, a lot of those guys that, that are doing that. I mean, I wish that I had done something like that a long time ago mm. because I, I look back and I think, you know, wasted opportunities, honestly. And, and I mean, there's nothing I can do about it now, of course, and I'm happy I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, You're smashing but, it now, right? So still well, doing well. Well, I, 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 I guess you could say that. Yeah, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm making a decent living doing what I want to do. There you go. Happy as Larry. So that's the main thing, right? right happy right. and healthy. Right. And no, <laughs> no, you know, no boss to tell me what to do. Nothing like that. So nah, that sounds perfect. Now you've done really well, man. And you're a really good story for a lot of people out there listening. So, um, yeah, we appreciate, we appreciate what you're doing and you know, we appreciate you on the pod for uh, talking to us and our listeners about it. So that's great. Um, all right, mate, like I said, we got, we got to get through a few of your books. Uh, I think you got f five in total. Is that correct? Or am I missing any out? Uh, yeah, I've, I think I've actually written seven and seven. taken okay. a couple, taken a couple off, but yeah, there's something. Okay, like <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go through, uh, starting from the first one, which I've got off of Amazon. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I haven't read them all, but I just want if you could give a quick, like literary snapshot synopsis of them all. I think there's one in particular which I might ask, uh, or I want you to more delve into more detail on the later ones, but um, I think you mentioned this earlier at the start of the pod, uh, Smash Chronic Fatigue, a concise science-based guide to help your body heal and banish fatigue forever. Uh, that's probably your first one uh, based on Amazon. If you just give us a little synopsis on that, that'd be great. Right. Uh, that was my first one, um, and it was uh, my attempt at just summarizing what I'd learned about chronic fatigue and what I thought um, could help a lot of people get better and have more energy. Uh, that's perfect. Yeah, and like you said, that was based on your experiences, like fresh out of um, coming through your illness and all that. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a read or a listen to that if it's available audio, but that's a really good one. Uh, you, yes, your second one, Muscle Up, How uh, Strength Training Beats Obesity, Cancer, and Heart Disease, and Why Everyone Should Do It. I think that, that came out um, a year later, if I'm not mistaken. Something, something like that, yeah, about a year later. Um, right, so that was, uh, again, what, what I was trying to say about resistance training, about strength training, uh, why everybody should do it, and why there are solid uh, scientific and medical reasons why everybody should do it. Why it's not just for bros. Um, why why it's 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 a very solid um, health intervention. Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, mate. Your next one was uh, best supplements for men. I know we just touched upon uh, vitamins and supplements, but yeah, I mean, if you could, uh, you know, without giving too many spoilers away, 
But you know, some of some of the you know more the best supplements you use and which you might recommend for our uh, listeners and all that, if they follow the you know the right regimen and diet and everything, not just you know do it blase. Right. So um, I'll tell you, I get asked this question a lot. So yeah, obviously the book has has got a lot about supplements. Um, I get asked this question a lot, like what supplements do you recommend? And so that obviously varies a lot from person to person. But there are three that I think most people could use um, and, and get get some uh, benefit from. One is magnesium, which I already mentioned before. It's just most most people, I mean, it's like something like two thirds of adults in the United States are, have been deemed deficient in magnesium. And it's such an important uh, element to get. So magnesium is one of them. Vitamin D is another one. Um, so a lot of people are vitamin D deficient. Um, you know, and, and of course, if you, if you get out in the sunshine and so on, you know, that's great. You can get enough vitamin D, but the problem is, you know, winter comes and you can't get in the sunshine and lots of people live in northern climes like yourself. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, vitamin D can be very useful. You can take vitamin D when and if you can't get enough sunshine. Um, the last one is fish oil. So um, that that's a pretty solid intervention for a number of reasons. And most people don't get enough of the omega-3 fatty acids in, in fish oil. So that's something else I take. Um, or, you know, if, if, if someone is a regular fish eater that ate fish two or three times a week, that'd be sufficient mm -hmm. as well. So th yeah. those are three that I think most people could benefit from. Mm, fair enough. Just, just out of interest, where, where can you get magnesium from uh, nutrition? Is there so I'm not, I'm not too familiar with what kind of food sources are high in magnesium. I don't know if you know it, any, but just have interest. Right. So it, it's in whole food sources, whether, you know, whether meat or eggs or veg, but where you don't get it is in processed food, you know, in the flour, with stuff made with flour and sugar sure. and seed oils, the stuff that people eat a lot of. And um, yeah, so you don't get it there. And um, it seems that, until relatively recently, a lot of people got magnesium from hard water, from their drinking water. Oh, but wow. um, you know, you know, hardly anybody does that anymore. Yeah, mm. there's, it's, it's fascinating. There, there's a fairly large amount of literature on the fact that people who live in areas where there's hard water have lower rates of heart disease oh, wow. um, than people who don't. So uh, they, you know. There's a lot of speculation, of course, but magnesium is, mm. is a likely reason because they're getting magnesium. Uh, that's really interesting. So a lot of people with, who have hard water, I guess they would, um, they, they don't want to get that sort of lime scale problem or that. So they'll, <laughs> they'll get one of those water softeners, right? <laughs> right. All right. Uh, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't think about those three, to be honest. Um, I need to, yeah, do some more research on that. Um, all right, so your next book, I think it was uh, published in 2016. This one is one which I'm really intrigued by, and this is probably the first I'm going to read properly. Uh, Dumping Iron, How to Ditch the Secret Killer and Reclaim Your Health. I watched, um, I think, yourself on another podcast uh, last week, and I was so intrigued by it. I just genuinely had no understanding of this, you know, iron sort of concept which is going on. Everyone assumes high iron is good for you and this and the other. If you could talk a bit about the sort of iron paradigm, uh, if, you've, if you've got time, that'd be great. 
Sure. So um, iron uh, is, is a required nutrient for basically all living things. Um, so, so we do require iron. Human beings have, uh, you know, we are able to absorb iron from our food, from our diets. And also we have, at least in theory, we have a finely tuned physiological mechanism for uh, determining how much iron we should be absorbing from our food. So, so uh, again, in theory, if you're healthy and so on, and if you have enough iron in your body, you shouldn't be absorbing excess iron from, from your food. Um, but that's often not the case in, in the modern world. So what happens is that um, iron accumulates in the body. So while human beings have a regulatory physiological method to, to, you know, to, to regulate the amount of iron, the uptake, there's no way to get rid of it. There's, there's no regulated way to get rid of it. Women get rid of it because they go through the menstrual cycle. So women, um, up to the age of menopause typically have much lower iron levels in their body than men do. And, women up until the about the age of menopause are in much better health than men they suffer far fewer heart attacks um, cancer and so on up to about that age after the age of menopause they catch up to men although it takes them longer sure um, so there there are definite um, you know correlations between the amount of iron in your body and mortality and and various diseases and so on um and and so and another another aspect of it is that um so blood donors have better health than uh, non-blood donors so blood donors obviously they donate blood and your blood is the um the place where the is that has the most iron in your body because mm. you require iron to make red blood cells. So you can look at you can look at um, without without making this too complicated. You can look at the iron in your body as consisting of two compartments. One compartment is your blood, and then and and anything that's left over from making your blood is stored in the other compartment. That's your body iron. And it's that excess body iron um, that can lead to problems. So if you donate blood, your, your body has to make new red blood cells, obviously, and they it takes iron from the other compartment to make the blood cells. So your body iron goes down. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, if you talk about the subject, the first thing people will say is healthy user bias. So that means in, in, in this context, it means well, blood donors are healthier than other people to begin with, and that's why they have better health. So obviously the people doing research on this topic are aware of this, so they've done a number of things to get around that, to try to get around that. Like, for example, comparing frequent blood donors to less frequent blood donors. Um, and so they still find improvements in health. Um, so, and, and then just one last thing is that, so iron, iron is a very reactive element. I mean, obviously, like if you leave iron out, 
in the weather, it'll, it'll rust because yeah. it reacts with oxygen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, that's really why our body needs it because it does some of these same reactions in the body, like carrying oxygen in the blood and so on. But because it is a reactive element, our body strives to contain it. So we have molecules that store the iron to keep it from reacting with other things in our body. But if it gets out of these storage places and, mm -hmm. and, and in contact with other elements of the body, it causes damage. So in essence, that's, that's the argument for uh, you know, why higher iron is bad for us. Um, so if you keep iron in the low normal range, um, that, that is going to prevent some of the, you know, chronic diseases of aging. Wow. That's really interesting. You know, I mean, cause there's a lot of people in, um, society or at least, the, the, the medical professionals say who are sort of iron, you know, quote unquote, iron deficient. Do you know what I mean? So it's really intriguing to hear sort of the flip side of that as well. Because you don't really hear that, do you know what I mean? Like ever, the iron like can be in, in sort of over, overdrive, if you like. Do you know what I mean? That's uh, yeah. I'll probably urge everyone to read that, but I'm gonna read it properly myself. But it <laughs> okay. sounds okay, intriguing. Great. <laughs> great. All right, let's talk about the final book. I know you said there was a few more, which um, we're taking back, but the final one I got on my list: um, "Stop the Clock: The Optimal Anti-Aging Strategy." I know we talked about this um, a little bit earlier. Actually, you know, one question I had about this. Um, I, I talked to my mate on the pod a few, uh, a couple of months ago, and he very much follows um, David Sinclair's sort of anti-aging philosophies. And you mentioned a few of them, which are quite, um, they're quite in tandem with each other. Um, is, that, is that sort of a similar thing? Or is it, um, do you have any different impetus towards anti-aging? Or is it quite, quite similar? Because his theories are is quite basic when you look at it and listen to him, right? When you say like, you know, try and stay a bit cooler and cold like you mentioned the um uh you know uh, intermittent fasting and um you know some of the other strategies you mentioned they're very similar is this what the book outlines as well because um i i, I thought it was really intriguing stuff that you mentioned right so yeah there there are certainly some similarities and and there are things that um i see a little bit differently from david sinclair on as far as sure. in terms of what's the most important thing. Um, as far as I, th I think what um, my book, Stop the Clock, I think the central message I could sum up like this. The, the human body is capable of repairing itself, of making itself, of renewing itself. And as, as we humans age, we gradually lose that ability. So it becomes harder and harder to renew ourselves. And if you can do certain things that make it more possible for the body to renew itself, and you can, then you can effectively slow or reverse aging. So um, basically how it works is that, for example, intermittent fasting, um, that that is important. Your body will work in cycles of basically of of tearing down and building up. So all all the elements of your body, the proteins, everything turns over. It recycles because it, these these things get damaged with use. So they they have expiration dates, you might say, and 
So if you can get rid of these expired proteins and, and other molecules, then your body will make new ones to replace it, and that's renewal. And so you do that with, with basically, it's a cycle. So intermittent fasting is one, one important part of the cycle. And at the other end, you're eating. So you're eating, and so doing resistance training or other exercise is, is also important for this. Um, and so um, I, I have compared this idea to a sine wave, right? So we go up and down in cycles of breaking down catabolism and building up anabolism. And, and that wave flattens as we age. So it becomes harder to do both. It becomes harder to tear down and it becomes harder to build up. Both are equally important. And if you could do these various things that bring that cycle back into a normal range, you're going to retard aging. That is intriguing stuff. Very intriguing. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I think your books have got to be um, definitely taken notice of. I'm definitely going to go through them myself. But, you know, I've had the most fun talking to you, mate. Like, um, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have learned so much. Um, why don't you tell some of our listeners where they can find yourself and, um, you know, whether it be socially, uh, websites, whatnot. Uh, we've gone through the book, so hopefully they'll take notice of that because that's something I'm going to do straight away. Right. Th thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to be here. You, they can find me. My website is, is roguehealthandfitness.com. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is mangan150. Um, and that's about it. That's where they can find me. And my awesome. books are on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah, we'll post your uh, Twitter handle on our episode description. But uh, Mr. P.D. Mangan, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And um, like I said, uh, we appreciate your time so much. So thank you so much for um, giving us your time. Have a good one. Hey, the, the pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me. Nice one. All right, people, stay safe. Bye-bye. Uh,